Hey, you're listening to the audio version of Well Read with Justin Chapman. If you'd like to watch the video version, please go to youtube.com backslash C backslash Justin Chapman 15 or just search for Well Read with Justin Chapman in the YouTube search bar. Learn more at justindouglaschapman.com. Enjoy the show. Hi there. Welcome to Well Read with Justin Chapman. Thanks for being here. A quick note of shameless self-promotion. I came in second place in the hard news category and third place in the obituary slash inappreciation category at the Los Angeles Press Club 63rd Annual Southern California Journalism Awards last month. Both nominations slash wins were from my Alta Journal article about Mad Mike Hughes, the flat earther daredevil rocketeer. More than 2,000 entries were submitted this year. So while I didn't win first place, I was honored to be recognized by the LA Press Club among so many outstanding reporters doing Yemen's work in Southern California this year. Congratulations to all the winners and nominees. Keep up the great work of keeping our community informed. Check out this segment produced by Pasadena Media about the awards. From Pasadena Media News, this is a news update. Local journalist and Pasadena media producer Justin Chapman took second place in the hard news category and third place in the obituary slash in appreciation category in the 63rd annual Los Angeles Press Club's Southern California Journalism Awards. Born and raised in the Pasadena area, Chapman has been an independent journalist since 2005, writing hundreds of articles for KPCC, Alta Journal, Huffington Post, LA Weekly, Pasadena Now, and Pasadena Weekly. Both wins were for Chapman's article in Alta Journal, The Daredevil Who Reached for the Stars, about Mad Mike Hughes, the amateur rocketeer who perished in the desert outside of Barstow after launching himself in a homemade steam-powered rocket this past February. Chapman was at the scene recording the launch and crash. He is currently writing a book about Hughes. For Pasadena Media, I'm Joe Carbonetta. Thanks for Let's talk a bit about some national news. Democrats got mixed result in the November 2nd elections, but from the coverage of it, you would think the sky had fallen in. The Democratic governor won with a rager thin majority in New Jersey, and the Democratic candidate lost the Virginia gubernatorial election in a state that has been trending blue for years. Of course, Republicans are saying there's fraud in the New Jersey race where they lost, but not in the Virginia race where they won. What's the pattern there? It's clear that schools are the political battleground now, which is code for critical race theory and mask and vaccine mandates. As John Kelly of Puck News put it, quote, critical race theory is not even taught in Virginia's K-12 schools. This shouldn't have been a controversy at all. Concepts like equity and inclusion are common vernacular in the modern workplace and society. But that didn't stop Glenn Youngkin, the Republican candidate, from pledging to ban it anyway on his first day as governor. Youngkin had reframed a crucial election, which could have focused on health care or the economy, over a contrived social wedge. More depressingly, reckoning with America's racial past and present issues is one of the most significant challenges of our time. It requires listening and understanding, not race baiting and rage baiting. And yet in our copycat business political climate, Youngkin's ability to turn critical race theory into a wedge issue 
was being heralded by the GOP within hours of his victory. He had established a playbook. By Wednesday morning, the Republican Study Committee issued a memo noting that in future elections, quote, Republicans can and must become the party of parents and build a platform around decrying critical race theory, end quote. That Republican memo is a masterclass in Orwellian doublespeak. Right-wing media and politicians are apparently incredibly good at convincing voters that things that aren't true are true. They're very skilled gaslighters. They've created this boogeyman that doesn't exist and doesn't reflect reality. For example, most people who cite the threat of critical race theory can't even explain what that means and certainly can't show you where this obscure academic theory is codified in elementary or high school curricula, because it's not. This is like when the Tea Party claimed Sharia law was being taught in American schools. Even if such lessons from critical race theory were being taught in schools, what would be so wrong with that? Our kids can't or shouldn't learn about slavery or institutional racism or the history of why this country continues to struggle with race relations. I think our kids can take it. I think they can handle the nuance. They can learn about the good and the bad in American history. The only indoctrination going on here is by right-wing media, ungullible voters who want an excuse for the unconscious or conscious bias. Meanwhile, the Dow is over 36,000. Unemployment has dropped to 4.8%. Over 5 million jobs were added in October, which is a record. Vaccinations for children ages 5 to 11 were approved. Congress passed a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill with massive investments in roads, bridges, and highways. Improved internet access and modernization of the power grid. The biggest investment yet on climate action. And they're on the brink of passing another massive human infrastructure legislation doesn't sound like the, the country is on the wrong track to me. Side note, I just love it when moderate Democrats always blame progressives when their moderate candidate loses to a Republican. Right, that's the lesson here. McAuliffe was a terrible candidate. It's time younger generations get their chance to lead. Regarding mask and vaccine mandates and people railing against them, painting themselves as freedom fighters and, and civil rights heroes, you don't have the freedom to put others' health at risk. This is a public health crisis, and everyone needs to do their part. Like these police officers who are threatening to quit rather than get vaccinated or face weekly testing. Okay, see ya. Supposedly public safety officers who refuse to do their part to protect the safety of the public. These mandates don't even say that vaccination is the only option. You either get vaccinated or get tested regularly. If you're not vaccinated, you should be doing that for your own safety and well-being anyway, let alone all of your loved ones around you and society at large. No man is an island. No woman is an island. It is not unreasonable for public spaces and workplaces ensure the collective public's health by implementing something as simple as testing. Quit your bitching. Sure has been a lot of whining going on lately. And perhaps relatedly, a lot of crazy. Hundreds of people gathered in Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas recently because they honestly believe that JFK Jr., who was killed in the plane crash in 1999, is actually still alive and was going to reappear where his father, President John F. Kennedy, was shot and killed in 1963 and would go on to join Trump on the 2024 ticket as his vice president, a theory that was born out of the QAnon conspiracy movement. It would be funny if it weren't so sad and downright scary. The reality is there's no telling what a person is capable of who believes something as batshit crazy as that. 
And we're not talking about an insignificant number of people here. Tens of millions believe in QAnon, even more believe the 2020 election was stolen. And we seem to have crossed the point of no return in terms of this country being split into two camps that tune into two different media worlds and live in two completely different realities with no common basis of truth or facts. Let's take a look now at snapshots of international, national, and California news. In international news, the UN held its 26th climate conference or COP26 in Scotland. Climate activist Greta Thunberg called the conference a failure and a two week PR event. She led 25,000 people in a demonstration and called for more action from the international community. A few new commitments did come out of the conference, but not nearly enough. Countries and funders pledged $1.7 billion to indigenous peoples. Over 100 countries, including Brazil, pledged to end deforestation by 2030. 83 countries signed on to the Global Methane Pledge to reduce methane emissions. A few more countries made commitments and timelines for cutting their emissions to zero over the next few decades. But China was nowhere to be found. And scientists said a fail failure to ensure much deeper cuts in greenhouse gas emissions will ultimately result in catastrophic and irreversible climate change and global warming. In national news, infrastructure update, the Build Back Better bill, which hasn't passed yet, so far includes a tax break for local news outlets that could go a long way to saving local news, which is in dire straits right now. It's called the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. It's a payroll tax credit that supports local news organizations for employing local journalists. It would provide a credit up to $25,000 to defray employment taxes in the first year and $15,000 in the next four years for each employee, covering 50% of compensation up to $50,000 in the first year and 30% in the next four years. So it would incentivize outlets and publishers to hire or retain local reporters. And it's absolutely critical. In California news, the final election results from the recall of Gavin Newsom campaign are in. They show the exact same percentages as the 2018 gubernatorial race, 61.9% for Newsom in 2018 and 38.1% for his Republican opponent, John Cox, and 61.9% no on the recall in 2021 and 38.1% yes on the recall. That's what nearly $300 million bought us. And for local Pasadena news, check out my other show, News Wrap Local with Justin Chapman, which airs on Pasadena Media's TV channels and streaming apps every third Friday of the month at 5 p.m. Pacific. This month's guest is none other than Congressman Adam Schiff. You won't want to miss that one. Let's patch in our guest, author Maria Armudian. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's so great to be with you and to see you again after all these years. Yeah, you too. Maria is a, a senior lecturer of politics and international relations at the University of Auckland and the host and producer of the syndicated radio, radio program, the Scholar Circle. She served as an environmental commissioner for the city of Los Angeles for five years on the board of taxicab commissioners for two years and worked on environmental protection, government oversight, poverty reduction, civil rights, and corporate reform legislation for the California state legislature for eight years. She is also the author of three books, Reporting from the Danger Zone, Frontline Journalists, Their Jobs in an Increasingly Perilous Future, Kill the Messenger, The Media's Role in the Fate of the World, and her most recent book, Lawyers Beyond Borders, Advancing International Human Rights Through Local Laws and Courts. And I'd like to read part of that book's description that sort of set the scene. 
Despite international conventions and human rights declarations, millions of people have suffered and continue to suffer torture, slavery, or violent deaths with no remedy or recourse. They have fallen in essence below the law, outside of law's protection, often violated by their own governments, sometimes with support from transnational corporations or nations benefiting from human rights violations. How can these victims find justice? This book reveals the inner workings of the advances and retreats in the, in the quest for redress and restoration of human rights for those whom international legal political systems have failed. These cases were among the most unlikely to be slated for victory. The abuses occurred abroad. The victims are aliens, usually with few if any resources. The perpetrators are politically powerful, resourced and well-connected, often members of governments, militaries or multinational corporations. The legal and political system structures are mostly stacked against these survivors, many who bear the scars of trauma and terror. Maria's book is about how in the face of powerful interests and seemingly insurmountable obstacles, a small group of lawyers and survivors navigated a terrain of daunting barriers to begin building case by case, new pathways to justice for those who otherwise would have none. So Maria, how did you end up writing this book? Why did you want to explore this, this field of law? You know, I'm so glad you asked that because there is a story there. Um, you know, I had worked in politics, as you noted in the bio, for a very long time. I worked in the California legislature and before that um, through NGOs and other like electoral politics and sat on the board of a bunch of NGOs, was a journalist for a long time, too. And, you know, I was looking at the big problems and trying to come up with solutions for them in all these different roles and just discovered that even when you're in a, a legislative body, it's really hard to make a difference, you know? And I went back to grad school to see why is it so hard? And so I kind of did this sort of systems look at it. And one of the things I landed on, as you also noted, was media. But then while I was in the process of doing the radio program, the Scholar Circle, I met a couple of these lawyers and had them on the program who were representing at the, at the first one was uh, representing the villagers who were in hiding from Burma. Mm -hmm. um, they were in hiding along the Thai Burma border because Unical, the oil company that was based in Los Angeles, is just now merged with another oil company had a deal to build a pipeline in Burma with the military government, and they had been conscripting um, the villagers, forcing them, slave labor, to build the pipeline and infrastructure. And if they wouldn't, and even if they would, a lot of them were enduring torture or would be shot dead. And so they fled to the borders. And in the end, um, a handful of them sued they tried to sue the Burmese government, but they ended up suing Unical and settling for a very large sum for like $30 million. And for the longest time, I thought, you know, it's so unfair and so unjust that people should be suffering this way. And it seems like there's nothing that can be done. So when I found out about this, I was like, oh, my God this is somebody doing something. This is somebody making a difference mm -hmm. using the tools that they have. That particular lawyer happens to be a Pasadena lawyer. I know you're in Pasadena. Mm -hmm. um, there was a law firm called Hadsel Stormer. You probably know of them because they're fairly well known and as being trailblazing um, civil rights lawyers. Mm -hmm. And one of the lawyers that were, was on the case is now a judge and Richardson 
But so that I wanted to understand how they could do this. How could they, you know, sort of circumvent, I guess, jurisdictional issues and, you know, sovereign immunity types of issues. Although when it's an oil company, you don't have that as much. And so I traced this back and I wasn't the first one to trace this back, but I was the first one to kind of do the whole thing to a guy named Peter Weiss, who's 95 now, still alive, fascinating guy. Um, and, and he he just, he had been a survivor of Holocaust and his um, sort of one foot in human rights, the other foot in civil rights. And when you've got that sort of purview, you see the world differently. His idea was universal jurisdiction. It wasn't his, but this was the idea that was driving him. And this concept was that some crimes are just so heinous that they should be prosecuted anywhere or everywhere, really. And he stumbled across an old statute in the U.S. from the very first Congress, the very first Judiciary Act, that essentially gave aliens jurisdiction when laws violated the laws of nations. When he found that, he set a precedent by representing a Paraguayan doctor whose son was tortured to death in Paraguay by a Paraguayan official. And that, like civil rights law does, um, enabled others to then start building a movement. And so that's what they did. They started building the movement in the United States. Um, increasingly, uh, those who were you know, survivors of genocide or torture who had nowhere else to go, if they could um, you know, serve their perpetrator, get personal jurisdiction, they had this as, a, as an ex the alien tort statute as universal jurisdiction, and they could get some semblance of justice, even if they didn't get the big settlement. You know, they could tell their story in a court of law and they could get a judgment. And sometimes they even got a monetary reward, but that tended to be kind of secondary. Mm -hmm. That's how it came about. And, and the, the alien tort statute that you mentioned sort of has this interesting origin in history starting in the, the late 18th century. And then, and then uh, Peter Weiss and others use it to sue on behalf of victims uh, in the, the late 20th and early 20th centuries, right? So yeah. he, he sort of discovered this old uh, uh, legal, legal statute and, and used it in, in modern day cases. Yeah, and yes, yeah, so it mostly sat dormant for all those decades. Now, and then after he won that, other lawyers kind of tested it for other things, but you know, the court said, no, this isn't a violation of the law of nations, but torture is, you know, genocide is. And that was even before the torture convention and the genocide convention. So yeah, he was, he was the first, followed by uh, some other civil rights lawyers, CCR, I see this as a uniquely American mm -hmm. story that then kind of um, gave these ideas to go abroad when the United States is now retracting. You know, the U.S. has kind of gone the other way when it comes to human rights um, and civil rights, for that matter. So it's it's a tough time. But now there are all these kind of cross-border activities that are just fascinating and that are, I think, going to be uh, potentially the new wave. And so did each of these cases have to have some U.S. connection and that's how they had 
jurisdiction or standing in, in these cases? It wasn't the case that they needed that before. Hmm. So when the Florida versus Pena Irala, which was the first case that Storm Peter Weiss took, and they sued Amerigo Pena Irala, there was no connection because the statute doesn't ask for that. Hmm. That's something that when you ended up getting in the United States, uh, kind of a more right-wing Supreme Court, that they imposed that over the top of the alien tort statute, saying that it must touch and concern the United States and the presumption against extraterritoriality. But there's nothing like that in the statute. And there was nothing like that in the in any of the precedents before. But this is what we see this court do. You know, people talk about activist judges. Here you have your activist judges. Right. <laughs> And um, uh, what, what are some of uh, the other examples of, of cases that, that you cover in the book? Like which countries and regions of the world are we talking about? What, what are some of the other stories? Yeah, there's so many. A lot of them were in Latin America, of course, because of all of the horrific human rights abuses that were happening in Latin America at the time. Um, uh, Argentina, I think it was maybe the second case after Florida where some of the survivors of the dirty war in Argentina had discovered, they had found out that the guy who had disappeared their family members, um, he was a general, had moved to the United States. He was living in California, living large, throwing big parties. And so when they discovered that, they were able to find him and sue him um, and get a judgment against him. I don't know if they were able to collect on that judgment. There were other instances where Bosnian survivors of torture discovered because of the networking of the of other Bosnians who had come over as refugees, um, found the guy who actually did torture him, like one of them. Now it was one of the first cases. And he uh, sued uh, his torturer directly. There were these three young women from Ethiopia who survived the Red Terror and who were refugees um, living in Atlanta, Georgia, and one of them had gotten a job in a hotel, working in the hotel. And lo and behold, she runs right into the guy that tortures her, working in the same hotel. Wow. Took him to court, sued him. Many of these cases, like they get a small judgment. In this case, they only managed to collect of the million-dollar judgment. I think they managed to collect like $850 or something like that. And they donated that to the ACLU. You know, it wasn't about the money. It was about, you know, facing their torturer. It was about, in some cases, getting them deported so that they can feel safe in the country where they're supposed mm -hmm. to have refuge. Those were the earlier cases. Then, you know, and you mentioned this, um, you know, the kind of whittling down of the ATS. Um, that happened because they started taking on multinational corporations. Mm -hmm. And when the, when the corporation started to fight back, and one of them that fought back was Royal Dutch Petroleum. They had already been sued successfully um, and settled, really. I think the settlement was 10 or $15 million for Ken Sarawiwa's uh, um, killing. I don't know if you know about that in the Ogani, uh, the, the indigenous oh, Ogani people mm -hmm. who, you know, in, Nigeria, whose lives were completely upended, their environment, their lives, they were terrorized, um, massacres, rapes, mass rapes, torture. And then they ended up 
hanging to death nine of the community leaders, well, their relatives sued um, Royal Dutch Petroleum for the partnership with the government and essentially paying for the security staff that ended up doing all these awful things and killing, hanging by death, these nine community leaders. Um, and that, after that settlement, which I think it was 15 million, I, I can't remember the exact number, but after that settlement, uh, one of the other survivors, Esther Kiobel, also sued. And that's when the Supreme Court came down with that terrible uh, ruling that said, you know, um, it, must, it must touch and concern the United States. There are many of these stories. Um, I could keep going, but you might have other questions. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, no, the, it's interesting. Erwin uh, Chemerinsky, dean of UC Berkeley School of Law, of, of course, well-known, respected legal scholar, wrote this this great intro for your book, and he talks about how uh, your book reminded him that that lawyers actually have quite a bit of power to to make the world a better place, which is you know not the common reputation of lawyers, but <laughs> but it's true they can be a, a force for good and 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 change things. And uh, uh, but they're often not well compensated for that, that for this work, and, and so it's or like what, all, need, what needs to be done to uh, to yes. expand. Great this. question! Oh my God, that is like one of the key questions. So one of the one of the things I discovered through doing this is that most of the time, these lawyers can't make a living mm -hmm. at doing this work at all, right? Because they can't collect or whatever, um, and the legal fees end up costing a lot and the discovery work that they do is so expensive because you have to do it overseas and conduct it overseas and the kind of fact checking you have to do. It's an enormous undertaking. In one of the cases that ended up losing that dealt with the Elaji people, um, also of Nigeria, and they sued Chevron, I think that cost upward of $2 million and they ended up losing that case. Yeah. So the lawyers lost that money. Now, a lot of these cases that are individual are not quite as expensive, but again, it's not like they're uh, able to pay their bills because there's you know, no reward in the end. My ideas on this, there are some already you know, legal aid-ish types of organizations that we can build on. There are also pro bono requirements that we can build on. And increasingly, these cases are being done by non-governmental organizations, nonprofit organizations like Earthrights, uh, Earthrights International, Center for Justice and Accountability, uh, Center for Constitutional Rights, the ACOU, in partnership with large law firms. So here's the problem there. It's fine when you're dealing with an individual offender because there's unlikely to be a conflict. But if it's a large law firm, what are the chances that they represented the corporation or a subsidiary of the corporation or some, somebody related that then creates a conflict and they can't take it on pro bono? So I think we have to find a ways that law students can go to school and be public interest lawyers without coming out with huge debts. Mm -hmm to find uh, new structural means for compensating human rights public interest lawyers, whether that is through some expansion of legal aid or some expansion of uh, pro bono requirements. 
Um, and or there should be waiving of certain kinds of fees and, and subs, uh, you know, we subsidize all these big corporations, but we don't subsidize public interest types of law work. Yeah. Um, and I, I found it interesting that you chose not to interview defense lawyers for, for the book. Tell me a little bit about that. No, I wanted to. Um, it's a huge undertaking just to, to do the plaintiff side. Mm-hmm. I ended up... Um, trying to interview one in one particular case. And when uh, he discovered that I had interviewed the plaintiff lawyer, he declined to be interviewed. And I thought I can either spend all my time trying to chase down defense lawyers, or I can use their public statements because that's what they're going to stick to anyway. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a different study anyway. You know, I want it inside the heads and the hearts of the lawyers who were doing this work largely um, not for the money, but because they really wanted to make a difference. It's a completely different study than to include defense lawyers. Somebody should do that. Maybe I'll do that next. I, I don't know. I To me, part of what I want to do this for was I was inspired by people making a difference. Mm-hmm. And after writing two books, the first one, Uh, being about how media can be a force for good or for evil, really, because it could either exacerbate a genocide or it can help a peace process. Um, And it's not just straight fact. You know, after immersing myself in all that kind of genocide and torture stuff, I wanted something that gave me a little bit of optimism and hope. And these lawyers gave me optimism and hope. So I, you know, then including the defense lawyers, I was already pretty, you know, frustrated with the way the world was going. Right. Um, I, I read the other day that uh, Samantha Power, head of USAID, uh, announced that the U.S. will devote funding to help journalists overseas survive frivolous defamation lawsuits that are yeah. meant to silence them. And the Biden administration is setting up a global defamation defense fund for journalists. Yeah that meant to deter autocrats and oligarchs from trying to sue them out of business. And that kind of struck me as combining themes from this new book and and with your other two books. Yes, exactly. And just like also now um, I just saw, and I didn't look into the details of it, so I can't speak well about it, but The Hague is taking up these cases of, of attacking journalists as well, because it's, I mean, you've got to have great journalism in order to even get this information to begin mm-hmm. with. Um, and they're increasingly under threat. I mean, it's uh, it's some of the worst times for war correspondents or journalists that cover human rights violations. It's pretty, pretty dire. Yeah. So I'm glad The Hague is doing this. I'm glad the U.S. is doing this. I, we need a few more steps. Absolutely. So, so what's your website? Where can people learn more about your work? Well, I do have a website, armudian.com. It's not well maintained. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this particular book, Lawyers Beyond Borders, uh, University of Michigan is the publisher, University of Michigan Press. To learn more about that, I would say uh, UMich Press. And then the Scholar Circle is at scholarcircle.org, where it has all of the um broadcasts and podcasts that I and my, you probably know him, my colleague, Doug Becker. Do you know Doug? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's uh, he's doing a lot of the hosting now. He's fabulous. Cool. 
Well, it, it's a it's a fascinating book, Lawyers Beyond Borders, Advancing International Human Rights Through Local Laws and Courts. Author Maria Armudian, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show. Tell me about thank your work. Thank you so much for this conversation, and I really appreciate your time, too. Thank you all for tuning in. If you need recommendations for Goodreads, check out Frankly, We Did Win This Election, The Inside Story of How Trump Lost by Michael Bender. Not only does it have a great title, but this book's also the best political book about the 2020 election and Trump's last year in office that has come out so far. It's more insightful, more comprehensive, and more revealing than Bob Woodward's and Robert Costa's Peril, Michael Wolf's Landslide, and Philip Rucker's and Carol Lenig's I Alone Can Fix It, among others. You really get a behind-the-scenes look at the chaotic Trump campaign and also Trump fans who travel to like every Trump rally and how that has given them a sense of purpose in their, their otherwise meaningless lives. If you read one book about this period in American history, and you should read this one. Also check out Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could by Congressman Adam Schiff. Congressman Schiff takes readers behind the scenes of Trump's first impeachment investigation and trial and what it was like to be in the Capitol building during the January 6th insurrection. But more than that, he chronicles how his Republican colleagues devolved from respectable members who he could work with to complete Trump lackeys in a remarkably short period of time. Above all, it serves as a warning that democracy does not survive on its own. We must protect it at all times, at all costs. That's it for this episode. Thanks for watching. Stay tuned for new episodes of Well Read once a month. You can find this show on YouTube in the Pasadena Media TV channels and streaming apps. I'm Justin Chapman, signing off. Learn more about my work at justindouglaschapman.com and sign up to receive my monthly email newsletter to get updates on what I'm working on at justinchapman.substack.com slash subscribe. And remember, a life well read is a life well spent. So go read a book. Till next time.